Welcome to Outside the Lines, the podcast of our hosts, Bob Cheviar and co-host Scott Shannon. Bob and Scott are longtime teaching pros in Westchester County, New York. They have both been ranked in the top 15 nationally in men's 35 and 40 and over singles and doubles. Bob is also the author of Deconstructing Tennis, the 4D System. Their goal is to help players gain a more in-depth understanding of many aspects of tennis, which are often inadequately addressed during the course of their development. Bob and Scott would love to hear from you on topics for future podcasts. Hi, all. Welcome to Outside the Lines. I'm your host, Bob Cheviar, and I'm here with my co-host, Scott Shannon. Welcome back. Uh, hope you had a great time in Colorado. Did, did you catch some big fish out there? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no fishing. Um, it was uh, it was fantastic uh, trip. Uh, the, the the weather was very bizarre. We had like a two inch, you know, like a hailstorm that uh, that that was like about two inches deep when when it was over on the ground and. Um, the weather was so changeable, but we played golf a couple of times, and uh, my kids gave me a Father's Day present, a uh, hot air balloon ride up to that, 2,000 feet. Oh, wow. That sounds so cool. And I and and I tell you, we had the perfect day. Uh, it was crystal clear, very like high 60s temperature, and you could see forever, and uh it was really, really something to, you know, to get up 2,000 feet uh, and be moving. Um, it wasn't scary whatsoever. Uh, it was really exhilarating. Sounds great. And now we're going to get to our podcast momentarily, people. But I just wonder, Scott, when you were up there, did you happen to see any Chinese balloons? <laughs> <laughs> not not only not any Chinese balloons, there were no other balloons ah, at no. all. Okay. So, so folks, we have um, what we hope is going to be a little fun for you today. I mean, typically in our podcasts, we're trying to tell you what we'd like you to do. And today, we're going to give a few examples of things that are going to get you into trouble and talk about ways to correct them. But we're going to start it off by giving a list of the top five biggest things that you don't want to be thinking in a match because at least for me no matter how much i try to go over what we'd like to be going through mentally in a match i see a lot of players or i hear their stories where they're deviating to these places that can't possibly be productive so we're going to go through uh, a few examples, and I'd also like to remind our listeners that going back, you can find it in our inventory and outside the lines. We did a podcast on how to talk to yourself. So that was the strictly positive take on it. Here, we're hoping to tell a few stories, get you to smile at yourself a little bit and say, yep, that's me. And then but still provide a constructive framework for making some changes in these types of thoughts that can interfere with your performance on the court. So Scott, I'm going to start it off with um, the things we're not going to talk about. For example, if you're 
a mom and you're in charge of running the house and everything, we're going to leave out thoughts like, what am I serving for dinner tonight? Okay, Just because it's not really relating to the match. We know these things can interfere, but that's not going to be part of our discussion. And I'd like to start off with number five, the following. Why didn't I practice more before this match? What's that feeling like, Scott? Or what is that about when if someone gets that thought just as the match is beginning, let's say, or midway through, and they're sort of upset with themselves for being unprepared? Yeah. First of all, it's got to play on the person's mind uh, that they are not they're not prepared at the level that they would want to be. And it's something within their control generally. So they're asking themselves, why didn't I practice more? And bemoaning the fact that they didn't, they don't feel uh, completely confident that they've done everything they can do. So that's a thought that you can get rid of, not just by kind of dispelling it, but by making sure that you are more uh, mindful of your, uh, you know, a couple of days before the match, are you getting out and practicing? Uh, are you practicing properly? Are you practicing with the right person? Uh, and, you know, it's a really a big boost to your confidence if you go onto the court and you say to yourself, you know, I've done the work. I've put in like the proper number of hours and the kind of, uh, you know, uh, rehearsal so that I can uh, get the most out of my game here. So you can definitely turn that around and get some confidence out, out of it. I th I think about it sometimes also like, I don't know, Bob, you probably never have really done this, but you've seen some of your students do it. They don't take overheads or they take like two overheads and they, you know, miss them or maybe they make them, but they take a couple overheads and then they think they're ready for the lobs inside the match. I know that if I don't take enough overheads, the first lob that goes up in the point, I'm like, uh-oh, I haven't really taken enough overheads and I'm doubting myself. I could probably still hit the overhead, but it's just not something that you need to have in your head. So that's that's part of um, you know preparation for starting the match is to make sure you get a good warm up and you practice your volleys, your overheads, your serves, Try to get some return of serves in, uh, and you're going to feel more calm, and you're going to feel well. I'm doing, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm doing the work. You know, Scott, it's it's so funny that you mentioned this because the other night, I was over at the club watching a 3.5 40 plus women's match, and got to watch all the courts were playing on the same side of the building. I watched three doubles and a singles match, and in the doubles matches, there was one shot that hit more winners than any other type of shot. Would you like to venture a guess as to what that shot was? Um, no. Lob. <laughs> the lob kept going over people's heads on both sides of the net, unable to get back and cover it. So to your point, imagine you haven't really warmed up your overhead where you feel like, yeah, I can't wait for an overhead instead of, uh-oh, uh, you're not going to be ready to play in a match like this where 
that's the first place people go when they run into trouble. They're going to throw right. up that lob. Right. right. Good point. Now, the other thing we've been, um, I've been doing quite a bit over at Chestnut is we had Sean Brawley in who's taken over the inner game of tennis from Tim Galway. He did an inner game workshop at Chestnut a couple of weeks ago and a bunch of people signed up and um, are making use of it, doing their simple bounce hit exercises. And I can't emphasize enough how when you practice, it's not just your shots. Once we get into execution mode, where we want to be able to consistently deliver the ball to the target, bounce hit is a key component of that. And we've mentioned that before. You made quite extensive use of that in your playing career, correct, Scott? Yep. Um, yeah, and we did say that in the other uh, podcast. Uh, I, I I mentioned that I actually did it um, in a big match at Concordia in the tiebreaker for return of serve against two really good servers. And it served me well. We won the tiebreaker. I made some like fantastic uh, screaming returns that were either uh, they couldn't handle or they didn't do much with the volley, but it really kept my mind on the process and hooked up to the ball. Yeah. So everyone remember your bounce hit when you go out to practice, it gives you the confidence. If you develop the skill and practice, you could actually execute in, in a match and it will guaranteed cut down on your unforced errors. So I'd like to go to yeah. number four, Scott. Number four question that you're asking yourself or thinking about, how did I end up with this partner in a big match? What do you think of that one? Um, well, I guess this is more geared towards um, a team match where you can have different partners for different matches as opposed Absolutely. to en entering entering a tournament where you're you know, choosing a partner and deciding because um, you're using the term, how did I end up with this partner? Absolutely. Uh, as, as a team format. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that that is something that you should probably just try to get out of your head because it's too late um, and you're questioning it and it's really kind of irrelevant at that point. You have to say, well, Maybe my partner and I are not the most compatible, but I've got to figure out a way for us to get it together and uh, to uh, work our way through this match. And maybe we can eke out a win and I'll deal with, uh, you know, the negative things uh, that seem to exist, um, you know, later. And if it has to do with, uh, talking to your partner about maybe making some adjustments and becoming a more compatible team or, you know, talking to the captain and, you know, just giving them some input so that they can make, uh, you know, uh, you know, choices based on more information coming from uh, the players. Yeah, I think um, if you sent out a questionnaire and everyone knew they were answering anonymously, and you ask them, here's the group of doubles players, partners that you could potentially choose from. On each team, you'd probably have one or two people that would get chosen. And then the rest of them are 
matching up however they might. Uh, so that's always a tough one when, I mean, it was part of our team experience, right? There was first singles all the way down through six singles and same thing with the doubles, one through three. Some people were just a little stronger than others and people have to get a better handle on how to deal with that. Uh, but I would also mention that uh, with respect to communicating with your captain, it's it's crucial that you try to give him or her this information so that they can do the best they can to match you up with someone that you feel comfortable with. Now, way back in the day, and you remember this player, uh, Scott, Chris Busa, he used to work with me at Chestnut Ridge for a few years. Right. Chris, Chris was a strong player. He played at University of Minnesota, but he had a built-in weakness in that he was nearly blind in one eye. So when it came time to making volleys, because so much of where we or how we track the ball is our two lines intersecting and making a read on the ball, his volleys could, particularly if he got a little nervous with just one eye basically sighting the ball, lead to trouble. So we would have to find a way to win with him in the back of the court. And many times we were successful adapting the normal doubles game to... Right. The fact that he had this particular weakness, although the rest of his game was very strong. So I do think you have to be willing to change your game if your partner's got something that's not holding up that well. Say, how can we structure this point so that you and I can still be effective for the rest of this match? Did, have, did yeah. you ever have to do that in a match? Um. Yeah, I, I, I mean, one comes to mind like very quickly, um, and I may think of other ones, but uh, I was playing a, a platform tennis match, and in the in the early part of the match, I don't even know if it was in the warm up or just after we started. All of a sudden, my forearm was like killing me, mm. and I don't know what happened, but. I was in like incredible pain. And then, um, you know, I started the match and, you know, it was like manageable, but it got worse. And there were certain things that I just couldn't do. I couldn't like drive my forehand. It like, it, it hurt. So wow. all I, I told my partner what was going on. And uh, he said, well, look, we can stop the match if you want to, you know, da, 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 da. And I said, no, no, no. Like, let, you know, let me see, maybe it'll go away, you know, whatever. And I just like lobbed the ball all the time, which is in, in paddle tennis, you know, that you can do that. And mm -hmm. that can, and that can, uh, you know, get your, get your partner uh, a chance sometimes to do something and you can keep in the point if you get a good lob. So I just did the minimal amount to get the ball back into play every time my serve wasn't really affected by it that much, but everything else was. And we end up winning the match like seven, six in the third. And we had absolutely no right to win the match. I mean, I played like my bare bones, you know, uh, desperate. Um, mm -hmm. 
but I was really happy that I was able to get through it. And obviously our part, our opponents helped us a little bit because they couldn't, they couldn't, they knew what was going on with me. They knew me and they knew what was happening. They knew that I was like limited and they couldn't, they could not take advantage of it enough to win the match. So it was pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm just going to give you a little warning there, Scott. I mean, paddle tennis, maybe it's okay to talk about, but please don't bring up pickleball on our podcast. <laughs> oh, okay. No, no. No, okay. I, I, I get that one loud and clear. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, by the way, there was a piece in the paper today about how quite a few fist fights have broken out because of the noise made by pickleball people playing pickleball when it makes contact with the paddle it's really an annoying pinging sound and you know imagine you're down in the in the courtyard there in the apartment complex and everyone is listening to this ping 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 going back and forth and there's, they're like shut up okay so anyway um for the pickleball players out there i apologize uh <laughs> tennis is my sport um, so we're going to go to number three, quite a few players are always, and they should be attempting to make changes in their game. And however, one time not to make a big change is in the middle of an intense competitive season. Like we've got going on now in the summertime around the New York metropolitan area. So imagine you're thinking this. Which grip should I be using on my serve? You never had to deal with that, right, Scott? No. <laughs> no, I, thank God I was I was pretty well decided on what I was gonna do um with my uh with my grip. So um I think that if you're at that point where you're wondering what, what grip you should be using then you haven't worked it out in practice. I mean, you you should know that certain grips allow you to do different serves, you know, more easily and better. So, um, you know, you can't you can't serve like a topspin serve with like an Eastern forehand grip. So you've got to know which grip is going, you know, going to work with each serve. And you should do what you feel comfortable with. You're in the match. You shouldn't be questioning yourself about like a technical thing like that. You should just go with what you feel comfortable with and what you know you can, uh, you know, produce the result with. And then you can deal with that on the practice court or later on. But that's just not something that you want to complicate your uh, your mental uh, focus with if you're wondering like, whether you should, you know, go with a grip that's a little bit further over or something. You don't want to take yourself out of your comfort zone in the middle of a match. No, I agree. So sometimes it means you've tried something new and in the long run, you'd like to be there. But right here and now you're in a match and it's probably not ready for prime time. You shouldn't feel at all bad about reverting back to the more familiar one under pressure and then hitting the practice court to try to bring the new one up to speed. Right, absolutely. So you came up with one, Scott. What am I going to do? He never misses. 
Now that's a tough one. You're because I think every tennis player knows we really like getting a few unforced errors coming from the other side of the net in order to be successful in a match. So what do you do when you're out there against someone who it seems like no matter what you've tried, the ball's always coming back one more time. Um, you know, it's like playing Steve Ross. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think you had some good wins. Uh, you had a good win over or, or maybe more than once. Well, I beat him actually, if you want to count mixed doubles, then I have two wins over him. And uh, okay. one, <laughs> the other matches were singles. I lost to him once as well, but he was a very okay. tough, right uh opponent and eastern tennis hall of famer and um you know you have to um you have to i think first of all decide that you have to decrease your unforced errors because that's how he's winning a lot of the points just by keeping the ball in play he was very tactical he wasn't just a pusher um had a tremendous lob if you played him outdoors i lost to him at armonk outdoors um but I think that it just shows, like, do you have enough of a game where you can attack him and you can play aggressively and pull it off? Because certainly he didn't win every match he ever played, but he certainly put people through the meat grinder in terms of them winning the match. But, you know, you had to develop, like, uh, you know, an aggressive serve, come in behind it a lot, be able, be confident to put your overheads away hit a drop shot, make him, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't fast, but he wasn't slow, but you could move him uh, and, and keep him off balance uh, in that way. Because if you let him set up, um, he had pinpointed shots and he would just drive you nuts. And then mentally you would begin to fall apart. Um, so I think you just have to, uh, you know, know that you have to play really smart tennis and, uh, you know, keep your errors down. And when you have the chance, you have to take it to him and go for the shots. Don't let him get his racket on the ball because he was always getting that thing back. Uh, and you thought you should have won the point like three, three shots before. Mm -hmm. So I'm, that's excellent advice, Scott. I'm, I'm actually remembering back that I played Steve Ross in doubles also with Tommy Walker whom I'm sure you remember, who was a longtime pro at Sawmill and now is down at the Hastings uh, Racket Club. And Tommy gave me a, base, a great piece of advice in the warm-up. He said, just treat Steve Ross like you're giving a lesson. In other words, don't overplay because that's how he gets these unforced errors to come when you're thinking it looks easy and you're trying to finish it off. So I actually, I was still placing my shots, but I definitely calmed down about the idea that I was playing him. And it was a comfortable two-set win for Tommy and I. So he gave me a, a great piece of advice there against someone who gets every ball back. Don't overdo it against them. Right, right. Don't try too hard and don't try to finish the point too early. So uh, there was one other one that you came up with and i think a lot of players can relate to this one when it's a big moment in the match and you're back there you're serving and you're bouncing the ball and the only thought in your mind after you've missed your first serve is 
whatever you do, don't double fault. How do you handle that one? I mean, it's happened to you, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, um, the thing is, I, I find that it's more like a feeling, you know, it kind of comes from your, from your subconscious. You're not like thinking that, but you know, the point is it's, it's some fear that's setting in. Like, I don't want to double fall. Um, you know, or I feel like I'm going to, I, I, I feel like a, a fault is coming and, um, I think you have to step back and, and come out of the box a little bit and, uh, you know, loosen your arm up and uh, take a breath. You have time and you have to dispel, you know, whatever's going on in your head because it's going to make you uh, have an iron elbow. And, you know, 99 out of 100 times, you're going to you're going to double fault. Mm -hmm. uh, it's almost always a perfect self-fulfilling prophecy. So what I do to kind of put something in its place is I think, uh, okay, just have a target. If you're feeling a little nervous, there's real pressure, you know, maybe you don't do too much with the target. It's a second serve, um, but you can't lollipop it, but just think about uh, serving the ball as if you're practicing it in warm-up um, and just see, see the ball and keep your focus on that and just let your body uh do the rest um but it's got to be something that you overcome in terms of what it does to your muscle tension so um you have to take a moment though i think if that thought gets into your head and you feel that that's what's happening to uh to loosen up and get a little relaxed and breathe uh and then just get up there and tell yourself just serve yep I mean, I'm going to admit to something now that I'm not that proud of, but it worked way back in the day. I used to go up state to get ready for the Chestnut Ridge Pro Classic and play a tournament up there like a weekend or two before. And there were a lot of really pretty good players up there, but I hadn't played them. So it was really good getting ready for the Pro Classic because going up against someone you're not familiar with can really force you to use all your skills. So in any case, I drew in the second round, this kid, Danny Narazano. I was maybe early thirties and he was 22 or so. And he happened to be Martina Hingis practice partner. So he was a really good hitter of the ball. He had all the shots. Anyway, I got to match point against him and I was, supremely nervous and i ended up having to hit a second serve and i hit it underhand and i won the match and the rest of the time i was there that weekend people would i could hear them in the distance talking about me saying there's the guy that beat danny he beat him with an underhand serve <laughs> <laughs> oh lord that's that's no, a great I'm not, story i'm not proud but you know, I got the job done. I could just, you know, th that arm had turned to steel. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Bob, I got to tell you, though, you and Michael Chang are in the same company, right? Yeah, but he had a good reason with the cramps and everything. Yeah, I, <laughs> right. I give him a It just a shows you got to do what you got to do. You were having yeah. a mental cramp. Yes. He was having real cramps. You were having a mental cramp. And instead of trying to, like, hit your, hit your regular serve, which you, like, figured was not going to work at all, 
you did what you had to do. You got the ball in play and uh, you gave yourself a chance and it worked out. So, I mean, uh, I, uh, I commend you for that. You shouldn't be so disproud of that. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. So our final one that we want to get to, and this is the big one. When you're saying to yourself in the middle of a match, why am I here? Now, this is a, you know, this is time for, or that question is for the post-match beer. Right. With either with your opponent or with all four of you, if you were. Maybe not your opponent. (laughs) (laughs) But. But it was, it'd be time for a little more of that type of uh, large question reflection, which. Hi again, sorry for that uh, abrupt ending, but we do want to finish up with that last subject. Why am I here? And while the file from the first part of the podcast was converting, I was thinking to myself, well, under what circumstances was I thinking that? And it was typically if I was not playing that well, I was getting frustrated by the game of tennis. A couple times, I think it almost got to the point of, I hate this game. Uh, And I just wasn't enjoying what was going on. Were you winning or losing? I was losing. (laughs) But it was also sort of, um, for myself... I wasn't one of these guys that could play a tournament every single weekend and submit my record to the ETA and have 26 tournaments. Um, Like, let's say Chris Gilroy did that, okay? And he won 20 of the 26 tournaments. And one year he got ranked one guy ahead of me and I complained. And they said, well, you only played seven tournaments. And I said, I know, but I beat Chris Gilroy. Why is he ahead of me? All those people he beat in the other 20 tournaments, in a sense, I beat all of them too because I beat him. So in any case, there was a a thing there, though, that they used because I had it against me too, um, called long and strong. Yes, long and strong. I mean, I was ranked John Mullen in 1980. John Mullen was ranked number one. I was ranked two, and I beat him three times uh, that year. And, um, he beat me like once or twice but so we were like head to head but i um appealed my the ranking to the committee and they said we have to give it to john mullen because he played uh, a longer stronger uh schedule for the year so he just eked you out a little bit and i said well i guess there's something to be said for that but I think it was shortly thereafter that I became the ranking chairman. And if your record was in fact three and one against him, not three and three and two, it is on the borderline, right? For the long and strong. If it had been three and one, you would have been number one in the East. So I'm just going to call you number one from now on. If if you're, (laughs) if you're, you're reporting that accurately, but uh, seriously though, a bit for our listeners, did you ever go through those moments where you're on the court and nothing was working too well, like 
sort of like a why am I here moment or not really? Yeah, I, I don't think I really had um, any of that kind of conversation with myself. Uh, you know, I was really just focusing on like what was going on there. And if things were not going well, I was trying to figure it out and, uh, you know, and get back into the match or turn things around. Um, but, you know, it's one thing that comes up in my head, Bob, when you bring this up, which 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 I was glad you did, was that, um, you know, you're I remember this when I was in Europe uh, with Tom Carey and we're playing on the qualifying for the ATP um, uh, circuit and. You get up there to serve and it's a tiebreaker or, you know, you're in a very close part of the match and. I thought to myself, listen, this is where you want to be. This is not something that you should be like um, trying to avoid or worried about. This, this, this situation right here is what you came for. So as opposed to thinking, why am I here? Um, I mean, and I understand why you would come up with that. Why am I here? Because you're so frustrated and nothing's working and you don't feel like your tennis is really, uh, you know, what it should be at that moment. And you're ready to kind of just say, oh, forget this. I'm not even going to, you know, play. Um, you know, I found that there were moments that were uh, very intense and very nerve wracking. And, you know, some people might just like succumb to the moment and the pressure. But I used to try to tell myself, this is what you came for. This is this is the position where, you know, you can you can do great things. And if you don't do great things, well, so what? But this is a moment that you can you can grab hold of. And lo and behold, you know, I ended up here and there doing some amazing things uh, in a pressure part of the match. Um, so uh, you have to be able to tell yourself things like that sometimes when uh, you're in these highly competitive situations. Well, I really like that changing from the question, why am I here to I'm glad I'm here. I mean, that that is a fantastic attitude switch, which no matter how much the pressure, if you can keep that perspective, mm. I, think it, I think it's a wonderful thing. So Scott, we have a couple of things uh, coming up. One is Wimbledon, obviously, which is going to be starting shortly. So uh, I think we're going to be back with a few comments on that. And we also have a podcast we're going to be doing on the Chestnut Ridge Pro Shootout. This year, it's going to be in a standard tournament format, both singles and doubles. Uh, the weekend, let me just check here, of the 21st the 21st through the 23rd of July. And we're going to do sort of like a preview of some of the players and what we can expect. And it's, right. it's wonderful level tennis. If people like to come yeah. up close and watch, it's extremely high level satellite players routinely and top college players are part of the mix at that tournament. So Scott, yeah. thank you for joining me today. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, Listen. Who do you who do you like at Wimbledon, uh, Bob? Well, so yeah, much as looking at the draws, and I was asking you before, uh, 
what did what did you think? Have you seen the draws? And you said no. I typically don't like to make a pick uh, in a big tournament until I see how early one of the top players, like an Alcaraz or a Djokovic or a Swatek, runs into another strong player who may not be seeded but has all the tools. Uh, so that's always something that I consider because I think these top players are more vulnerable in the early rounds than they are a little later in the tournament. I mean, yeah. take Djokovic, for example. Obviously, he's been practicing, but he hasn't been in a grass court tournament. Okay, so how confident is he really going to be when he first steps out there? That's the good time to get him if if you've got the right type of game. Right. Um, yeah, I think on the women's and the men's, you know, there's uh, there's definitely uh, going to be some people making waves and uh, taking out some of these higher ranked players. Um, do you think that at Wimbledon being on the grass, that in general, um, it's a little bit more of an equalizer than going to Roland Garros, especially? Um I mean, I get that feel that the grass, you can pull off upsets and do things that, you know, in, in Roland Garros on the red clay, it's just such a process. You know, you you can't just go out there and bang, bang, bang. You know, you have to work overtime. Uh, but at Wimbledon, because of the way the speed of the ball is and, uh, and, and everything, uh, sometimes I feel like uh, – that can happen. So I think Wimbledon is sometimes more unpredictable. Well, I think, yes, I think another way to say exactly what you're saying is serving matters more at Wimbledon than on red clay. And if you can get a couple free points on your serve, you're that much tougher to break. And then the matches inevitably become closer. And then you have tiebreakers, you know, you have so many tiebreakers, right? Yes. So on, on the flip side, at uh, at the French Open, I talk with John James over at the club periodically when the slams are going on. I asked him a couple of years ago about a particular match in the French, and he said, I watched one game, and I saw who hit the heavier ball, and I knew, to me, the match was over because <laughs> the other guy had nothing he could do. His shot was relatively, I mean, they all hit so well, more like a powder puff than a real heavy driving forcing shot. So uh, that's much more difficult to impose on a grass court, that type of domination. Right, right. I think you're right, though. The serve uh, is, the, is the key, which is generally the key to um, having a good game, uh, having a strong game. Um, people need to uh, really respect that and work on their serves and uh, make sure they know what grip they're going to be using when it comes to the serve. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's going to help a ton. Well, listen, listeners, thank you for joining us, Scott. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, and everybody. I'm going to be seeing you soon for either the preview or the Wimbledon wrap-up. Okay. Thank you, yeah. Scott. Absolutely. Thanks, Bob. Have a good one.